You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're talking about the Messiah, Jesus. Now, if a lot of you out there are Gentiles listening to this, you probably read over that part in your Bible where it talks about Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, up and over and think, yeah, yeah, he's a Messiah, okay, big deal. Well, chances are, if you're a Jew, it is a big deal to think about someone being the Messiah. And for us Gentiles, it should also be a big deal. So, is Jesus that Messiah? And what does that mean for us? Where, in order to answer this question, I decided to bring on one who I think is the best defender of this position out there, Dr. Michael Brown. Who is he? He's a founder and president of Fire School of Ministry in Concord, North Carolina, director of the Coalition of Conscious, and host of a daily nationally syndicated talk radio show, The Line of Fire, as well as a host of a Projects TV show, Answering Your Tough Questions, which airs on the NRB TV network. He became a believer in Jesus in 1971 as a 16-year-old heroin-shooting, LSD-using Jewish rock drummer. Since then, he has preached throughout America and around the world, bringing a message of repentance, revival, information, and cultural revolution. He holds a Ph.D. in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures from New York University and has served as a visiting or adjunct professor at Seven Evangelical Seminary, Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary in Charlotte, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Florida Theological Seminary, Denver Theological Seminary, and King Seminary, and Regent University School of Divinity, and he has contributed numerous articles to scholarly publications, including the Oxford Dictionary of Jewish Religion and the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. He's the author of 27 books, including Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, The Tragic Story of a Church and the Jewish People, which has been translated to more than 12 languages, the highly acclaimed five-volume series Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, a commentary on Jeremiah, part of a revised edition of Expositor's Bible Commentary, and several books on revival and Jesus Revolution. His newest books are The Fire That Never Sleeps, Keys for Sustaining Personal Reviver, 2015, with John Kirkpatrick and Larry Sparks, Outlasting the Gay Revolution, where homosexual activism is really going and how to turn the tide, 2015, and Breaking the Stronghold of Food, How We Conquered Food Addictions and Discovered a New Way of Living, 2017, with his wife Nancy. And I've gone through that book, and my wife is going through it right now. And he is a national and international speaker on themes of spiritual renewal and cultural reformation. And he has debated Jewish rabbis, agnostic professors, and gay activists on radio, TV, and college campuses. He is widely considered to be the world's foremost Messianic Jewish apologist. He and his wife, Nancy, who is also a Jewish believer in Jesus, have been married since 1976. They have two daughters and four grandchildren. So, Dr. Brown, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, great to be with you, Nick. Thanks so much. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about who you are, share us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. I mean, we, we already heard some of that. You were, were once a 
heroin shooting LSD using Jewish rock drummer. So how do you go from there to here? Yeah, from LSD to PhD. Well, uh, <laughs> born in 1955 in New York City, uh, my whole family, Jewish, mom and dad. But we weren't religious Jews. We were Jewish enough that I was born mitzvah at 13. I moved to Long Island when I was about seven years old from Manhattan to Long Island and had a good stable upbringing. My dad was a Uh, important lawyer in the New York Supreme Court. My mom and dad happily married, but I got caught up in the whole 60s counterculture revolution thing, you know, the whole drugs and rock music scene. So I was bar mitzvah at 13, but that was more of a social event for me than a spiritual event. When I went and saw Jimi Hendrix in concert later that year when I was still 13, I, I think that was a more impacting event in my life. So I got in the whole drug, rock scene, playing drums and all of that. And when I was 16 years old, my two best friends got born again, and I went to a little gospel preaching church to pull them out, and Jesus was totally foreign to me. I had no interest in God, but God began to convict me of my sin, revealed his love to me, and by the end of 1971, 16 and a half years old, I was radically transformed, born again. And my dad said, well, great, great to see the change in your life once he saw it was real. He said, but we don't believe this. And he was concerned, what, well, I'm going to get baptized now? And, and again, even though we weren't religious, this was something Jews don't do. And, and Jews know their history pretty well in terms of crusades and inquisitions and things like that. And, and the perception of religious Jews is, is our forefathers died rather than believe these horrible myths. And, and, and they were given a choice between baptism and death and gladly died. And now you're just willingly following this. So my dad asked me to talk to the local rabbi. He was a very nice guy. He befriended me, a brilliant guy, freshly graduated from Jewish Theological Seminary. And we would have these conversations back and forth for hours. And he'd bring me to meet other rabbis to talk further. And in those days, I was reading the King James Bible. And first couple of years as a believer, read it through about five times. And I used to memorize 20 verses out of the Bible every day and, you know, sharing the gospel everywhere. But when I talked to these rabbis, you know, they knew Hebrew. I didn't. They could challenge, you know, challenge my translation and my interpretation. I had no scholarship behind me. The the church in which I was saved was very devoted in terms of read the word, pray, share the gospel, but had no connection with the idea of Christian scholarship, apologetics, anything like that. So I was kind of thrown in the deep end of the pool and just told to learn to swim. And that's what happened when, when I got challenged again by rabbis and in the summer of 73, I was 18 years old, and these guys were very devout. Uh, they prayed for hours every day. They studied for hours every day. Uh, they lived in this. Uh, it seemed very authentic in terms of, wow, they're Jewish, and, and they're doing things that have been done for thousands of years by our people. So it was very challenging for me, and I knew I, that I knew that Jesus had changed my life. I also knew that if I was following the truth, then there would be answers to every question and every objection. So I began to pursue studies. I went to college simply to honor my parents because they had asked me to go to college. So I went to college as a music major, but I started taking Hebrew classes, but the Hebrew was a modern Hebrew, which I wasn't interested in. So I taught myself biblical Hebrew and then thought, you know, this is, this is really interesting. I switched to liberal arts. I thought, nah, I'm not into it. Let me just take more language classes. So I ended up majoring in Hebrew and then learning related Semitic languages and other ancient languages that were of interest, and ended up getting a master's and PhD at New York University in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures. 
and obviously I, I got very into the whole field. I got very interested in it. I, I loved learning the languages and, and studying the Hebrew Bible and, and its cultural background. But the, another part of me was that I wanted to be able to study these things for myself. I wanted to be able to take every challenge and not have to rely on this scholar says this, or this dictionary says this, or this commentary says this, that I'd be able to evaluate it on my own. And I really determined uh, fairly early on in this that as a Jew following the God of Israel, I was determined to follow him wherever the truth led me. And I remember agonizing over this. It was about 1975. I remember agonizing over this and saying, what if I'm wrong? What if Jesus is not the Messiah? What, what then? Uh, everything I've done all these years now, relationships that I've built and the, the future that I thought I had, it all goes out the window. And I thought, I don't care. I have to follow God and his truth. And, and then I said, but, but God, what if everything I believe is true about Jesus? What, what if everything is, is what I understand it to be? That means that, that I'm going to be rejected by my own community and hated and despised. I thought, I don't care. I don't care. I just have to follow God and his truth. And, and as the years went on, it's not like I went through agony of doubt uh, over and over. I had maybe two or three times in 45 years where I, I had to wrestle to the core of my being with the Jewish objections that were being raised. What happened, though, was the more I studied, the more I learned, the more I sought God in prayer, the more I opened my soul before him and opened my mind before him, the clearer and clearer and clearer it became that what I believed was based on truth. So the more I studied, I thought every child, and, and then I was in college and grad school, Nick, with all professors who didn't believe what I believed. Some were very secular, some were atheistic and hostile, some were religious, but with different beliefs. So I never studied with a professor who agreed with my position. So whether it was the authority of scripture, the historicity of scripture, specific beliefs about Yeshua, whatever it was, they always differed with my position, which meant I was constantly challenged either in a friendly way or in an aggressive way. And I thought, great, let's take the challenge. Let's see if it has substance. Rather than, okay, I'm going to refute this, I thought, let's see if it has substance. And after doing that for years, I said, you know, I think I've been honest enough treating these things before the Lord. I cannot deny what is clear and definite. The experience I had in my life is not just some emotional experience. It's based on a true encounter with the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to... Latch in on one thing you said, but you said, what if I'm wrong? What if Jesus isn't the Messiah? And when people who are Gentiles like myself, where we grew up, we read about Jesus Christ. And, you know, we kind of glaze over, okay, Christ. And I, I do like that debate that I went to that you were at recently. where You said it doesn't mean, and this is something I heard before, that Jesus is the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Mm -hmm. Christ really meant something. So... What would it mean, what does it mean to you if someone says that Jesus, or anyone else for that matter, is the Messiah? Right. So if you're a Jewish person in the first century, then Christos had meaning for you because it was anointed, and it was the Greek equivalent of Hebrew Mashiach, which means anointed, and is used for numerous people in, in, in the Old Testament in terms of the, the king being anointed, or the, the high priest being the anointed high priest. Uh, even Cyrus is referred to as God's anointed because he was chosen for a mission. Saul was an anointed of the Lord. But when it became HaChristos, HaMashiach, the Messiah, that had a specific meaning 
for the Jewish people. The larger Greek world, Christos, didn't really mean anything. Hence, they, they thought it was a name uh, pretty early on. But uh, for a Jewish person today, it would mean this Jew among us who will be raised up, who will establish God's kingdom on the earth. When you read the beatific descriptions of passages like Isaiah 2 or Isaiah 11, where there is no war on the earth and people beat their swords into plowshares and the, the ox uh, and, and the lion are feeding t- together, the wolf and the lamb feeding together, and, and the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas, that that's the work of the Messiah. And in traditional Judaism, they formulated several things that the Messiah would do. He would regather the exiles. He would fight the wars of the Lord. He would rebuild the temple. And he would bring Israel into universal obedience to God's kingdom. And then the wicked would ultimately be destroyed and God's kingdom established on the earth with the Jewish people in the center of it, but affecting the whole world as well. And there's other uh, Jewish theology that sees a second uh, messianic figure called Messiah, son of Joseph. Uh, in contrast with Messiah, son of David, and he's also a warrior figure, but he suffers and dies in the last great war before David raises him up from the dead. But the idea of the Messiah, the traditional Jew, will pray every day uh, in the formulation of Moses Maimonides, saying that I I believe in the coming of the Messiah, and even though he tarries, I'm going to wait for his coming every day. And many Jews believe that in every generation there's a potential Messiah, there's a Jewish leader among us who, if the nation will turn to God in repentance, then this person will be raised up. If the nation proves itself worthy, this person will be raised up. Uh, Rather than someone say coming in the clouds, even though Daniel 7 speaks of that and the the Talmud uh, speaks of that as well, the expectation is more that there'll be someone among us who is raised up and then who becomes this world leader, and then we recognize, wow, this is really the Messiah, and then the changes take place. So Jews are praying daily, especially in times of great suffering and pain for the coming of the Messiah, uh, somewhat parallel to the way that Christians would pray the Lord's Prayer and say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's an ancient Jewish prayer, and that reflects Jewish sentiments that are carried to this day. Yeah. Well, Dr. Brown, the thing is, you talked about Isaiah 2 and about all the nations coming and beating their swords into plowshares and such and this world peace. And, you know, Isaiah says that's what's going to happen. Messiah came and Jesus came. And, heck, just yesterday we had missiles going set or bombs going into Syria and such. So, I mean, it looks like that hasn't happened. Yeah, so the, the one of the simplest objections to Jesus not being the Messiah is... When the Messiah comes, there'll there'll be peace on earth. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. There has been anything but peace. And the simple answer to that, that there are two phases to the Messiah's coming and two aspects to his work. Uh, Like David, the Messiah is a priestly king. David himself performed certain priestly acts. He wore the linen ephod. He he, uh, built an 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 altar and offered up sacrifices and Uh, a few other things that he did. And Psalm 110, which is either speaking uh, on one interpretation that we have in the New Testament, that it's David speaking about the Messiah. Uh, Others would challenge that and say, no, it's a court poet speaking about David. The end result is the same. It says of David, who's the prototype of the Messiah, or of the Messiah himself, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David, like Melchizedek, 
was a priest king, a priestly king. This is up in Zechariah, the sixth chapter, where Yehoshua, the high priest, is, is seated on a throne with a, cr- a crown on his head. And it says that he is a symbol of the branch, the man that's called the branch, which we know in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, and Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16, that this is a prophecy about the Messiah, son of David. He's called the branch. So, <coughs> excuse me, the one who, who symbolizes the branch is the high priest wearing a crown, sitting on a throne. The Messiah is a priestly king. And as a priestly king, he first had to come and deal with sin and make atonement. And we see that there was a time frame within which he had to come. I believe we can deduce that from Haggai 2, Malachi 3, and Daniel 9. There was a time frame in which he had to come and make atonement for Israel. And then in doing so, it would seem that he failed in his mission, Isaiah 49, that he he failed in regathering Israel. And God says, no, you won't only do that, you'll also be a light for the nations that my salvation may go to the ends of the earth. Uh, We see in Isaiah 50, the servant of the Lord that's spoken of, and and he is beaten, and and the the hair pulled from from his his beard on his cheeks. And then we see at the end of Isaiah 52, that this servant will be highly exalted, but first will suffer terrible disfigurement, and then as Isaiah 53 unfolds, we discover that he's going to suffer and die for our sins, that we thought he was dying for his sins, but rather he's taking the punishment for our sins. So what's to do with the Messiah? It's his priestly work. First, he'll be highly exalted, but uh, excuse me, first he'll suffer terribly, then he'll be highly exalted. First, he'll be rejected by his own people, then he'll be a light to the nations. This is what the prophets declared. And after Jesus had died and risen, and he opened his disciples' minds in Luke 24 to understand the scriptures, there it is, plain as day, laid out, nothing mystical, nothing hidden about it. So first the Messiah comes to deal with sin, he'll be rejected by his people, but become a light to the nations. And then at the end of the age, he'll be received by his people, just like Joseph was rejected by his brothers became the savior of the Gentile world. And then the second time around, his brothers recognized him in Egypt. That's what's going to happen as well, that the Messiah will be unveiled in his second coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and there'll be national mourning, repentance, and salvation. That's how I understand the scriptures are laid out very plainly. So again, there are two phases to the Messiah's work. First, he comes before the second temple is destroyed to do his priestly work as a priestly king, of making intercession for us, of dying for our sins, of offering up his own life as a sacrifice on our behalf. At the end of the age, he'll come to establish his kingdom on the earth. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Brown, you kind of said it yourself, that the Jews rejected him back then. And I meet a lot of skeptics who say, you know what, the Jews back then didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah and and that he didn't rise from the dead. Why should I believe it? I mean, if so many Jews have rejected Jesus as Messiah, shouldn't that give us pause? Yeah, well, the problem is that we've often rejected God and his prophets. In fact, that should make us wonder, maybe there's something here that I'm missing. First, our Bible told us that he was the one, and we would reject him. So who fits that description? Second, uh, shortly after Moses uh, comes down with the uh, 
Moses uh, affirms to the people after the Ten Commandments are given, this is God's covenant. And they say, yes, everything God's spoken will do. And it's in Exodus 19, and then the Ten Commandments spoken in the Book of the Covenant given. Then Exodus 24, the people say, everything God spoke will do. He goes up to Mount Sinai to meet with God for 40 days with the Ten Commandments. By the time he comes down, the nation is partying and worshiping an idol. And that whole generation dies in the wilderness. And then when you look at our history, our, our first king raised up, Saul. He ends up being rejected by God. Then you have David, Solomon. Solomon's heart turns away from the Lord because of, of his, his many foreign wives and idolatry. And then in the days of his son Rehoboam, the temple, uh, the, the kingdom gets split. So now you have the, nor- the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Now the northern kingdom of Israel largely destroyed going into exile 721 B.C., the temple destroyed in 586 B.C., the, the southern tribes, the kingdom of Judah going into exile, then after being uh, returned, then under Persia, then under Greece, then under Rome, then the temple destroyed 40 years after the time of Jesus, never rebuilt since then, our people exiled. What I'm saying is we don't have the best track record as a people that you can say, hey, whatever we do, whoever we follow, that must be the one. That's, that's one big problem. And the second big problem is this, that we committed horrific sin in, in the days leading up to the Babylonian exile. We were sacrificing children and giving them over to, to Molech and the, this, this under, underworld deity and committing atrocities. There was all kinds of immorality, all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of injustice as a result of which the temple was destroyed and we went into exile. But that exile only lasted 70 years and the temple was destroyed for roughly that period of time. Now, we've been without a temple. It's, it's going on 2,000 years. And for most of that part, we've been largely scattered from the land. And yet we, we weren't sacrificing babies to idols. We, we weren't even committing idolatry on that same level. And, and things were much better in second temple times than they had been in first temple times. So what sin did we commit that was so great? What error did we make that was so massive that's brought about this level of judgment? Well, rejecting the Messiah would be the one thing that fits that description. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that uh, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We've got Dr. Michael Brown here talking about Jesus as Messiah. He's only with us for an hour today, so we appreciate anything our show with him. But if you're here next week, we're going to bring back another good friend of our show. Uh, make sure to bring your kids, because this time this is a book for kids that we're talking about. We are going to have Jay Warner Wallace back in here for an interview, and he is going to be talking about his book, Cold Case Christianity for Kids. So if you like Cold Case Christianity, come back here, and if you don't like it, come back here anyway, because Jay Warner Wallace is a great guest. But let's get back to Dr. Brown talking about Jesus as Messiah. And, you know, Dr. Brown, you talked about how uh, we weren't sacrificed, your people weren't sacrificing children to Moloch and such. And then you talk about how, that what great sin have we committed. And a Jew could say, well, you know, you talk about all we sin, but there, there was one thing, like you said, yes, we did not sacrifice children to Moloch anymore. But isn't that what you believe in anyway? You believe that human sacrifice took place for our sins? God's never accepted human sacrifice for sins. Yeah, we repudiate the idea of human sacrifice. We repudiate the idea that you can sacrifice your child or or sacrifice another human being to make atonement, to make some type of 
of appeasement. We absolutely, totally repudiate that. What we do believe is a concept that Judaism teaches, which is the death of the righteous atones for the sins of the generation. Uh, the Talmudic rabbis found examples of this in their thinking in the Bible, and they, uh, they then developed this further in rabbinic writings right up until this day. So the short version is this, that you have people dying, a man that would seemingly be the most righteous man of his generation, and he dies at the age of 40. You say, why did that happen? And the traditional Jewish response would be it was for the sins of the generation. In other words, rather than God's judgment falling on those who deserved the judgment, the judgment fell on someone who didn't deserve it. So through his righteousness, he could pay for the sins of, take the place of the sins of that generation. And if that generation would then repent, then God would forgive. So this is a concept we see in Jewish thought. We see an example of it actually uh, in, in 2 Samuel, where there's a famine in the land. And 2 Samuel 21, I believe, there's a famine in the land. And David inquires of the Lord, why is there a famine? And God says to him, it's because of the bloodshed of Saul. Saul had, had killed people from, from another group. And as a result of that, uh, God had brought judgment on the land. So what was the solution? Shockingly, this is in the scripture. Shockingly, the solution was that several of Saul's descendants had to be killed. And when they were killed, now judgment came, representative judgment came, and the famine stopped, the, the drought stopped as a result of that. So we see in Isaiah 53 that the servant of the Lord will offer himself as an asham, as a guilt offering. In other words, he's saying they deserve the punishment. I don't. I liken it to a credit card that, that uh, this whole community, everybody here has uh, gotten heavily in debt. And, and um, they, they each owe a million dollars, a thousand people owe a million dollars. They could never pay it off. Well, my credit is 10 billion. I say, hey, put it on my account. I'll take it. I'll pay for it. So the Messiah, being perfectly righteous, says about the sins of all the world, put it on my account. I will pay the penalty in their place. And this is what Yeshua says in the New Testament. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down. So, <coughs> excuse me. We do not believe in human sacrifice, but we do believe in the atoning power of the death of the righteous. In contrast with Judaism, we'd say there's only one who's perfectly righteous. That's the Messiah, and he paid for our sins. And it's what it says in Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's by his wounds then that we're healed. Yeah, but Dr. Boone, when you talk about the whole forgiveness thing, we have many cases in the Bible where forgiveness takes place without sacrifice, just by prayer and repentance. I think about uh, Daniel 9, I mean, Daniel prays on behalf of his people and such, and there was no temper, there was no sacrifice taking place. And Heck, we could go all the way back to Abraham. Abraham believes in God, and it's credited him as righteousness. So why do we need atonement? Yeah, it's both and. It's not either or, it's both and. First, we must have faith. Uh, without faith, the death of Jesus does us no good whatsoever. So even from an entirely Christian perspective, if we believe Jesus died for our sins, that forgiveness is not appropriate until we put our faith in him and ask God to have mercy on us. But as, as God revealed himself to the people of Israel, 
when he gave him his law, because that's where we get the full, the full explication of how God was going to deal with his people. We see that, that they're required to believe him. They're required to obey him. And within the system of what God set up was atonement because we all fall short. So on our best day, trying our hardest to believe, trying our hardest to pray, trying our hardest to, to, to observe the Sabbath, keep the commandments, whatever it is, we fall short. We're commanded to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and our neighbors ourselves. yet we always fall short. So God set up an atonement system, not just the daily sacrifices twice daily, but every year, the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was, was very clear, and it required two goats in the midst of it, one of which would be sacrificed, the other which would symbolically carry Israel's sins off into the wilderness. So atonement is part of the system. So yes, God at any time, at any moment, can forgive. And God at any time, at any moment, when someone turns to him in true repentance and faith, God can forgive. At the same time, his forgiveness is based on the fact that the payment has been made. It would just be like a judge uh, sentencing someone to jail. Uh, he's not going to say, you know what? You had a bad day. You raped, you killed, you burned this family alive. Ah, everybody has a bad day. I can see you're really sorry. You go free. No, there would be no justice then. It, it would completely turn the world upside down. So that's what Paul writes in Romans 3, that God can be just and the justifier of the one who puts his faith in Jesus. So yes, God being God at any time that he desires can say, I forgive you. And when someone turns to him, he can say, I forgive you. But what he established for Israel was an atonement system that also taught them the principle of substitution, of life for life, of the guilty for the innocent. And that's what we see throughout the law. And that's what we see through the Messiah. So yes, we must turn to God in faith and we must ask for forgiveness and by his grace, turn away from our sins. At the same time, he forgives us based on the payment that's been made, based on the atonement that's been made. So it's both and, not either or. You talked about the law, but isn't the law supposed to be an eternal covenant and way that we eternally keep our righteousness and such? And why would we listen to someone who years now say, hey, uh, forget the law. You don't have to keep the law anymore to be righteous. Isn't that going against the covenant? Yes, certainly if you're a Jewish person, you have the Torah and you see that many statutes are for all generations, for the future, forever. And then you have a warning in Deuteronomy 13 that if anyone comes and says, follow the gods, even if they work a miracle, or give a prophetic word and it comes to pass, don't follow them. Don't listen to them. God is testing you. They would say, even if Jesus did work miracles, some would even say, even if he rose from the dead, we wouldn't believe it. God is just testing us to see if we really follow him. Well, here's the problem. Yeshua never said, follow other gods. He pointed everyone to the one true God, to his father. Uh, that's number one. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He came to reveal the father. Number two, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill. And, and he made very clear that, that the law was of eternal purpose and value. Now he was bringing it to its full measure. Number three, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, with the destruction of the temple and the scattering of our people, about 75% of the forever commandments are out of our reach. In other words, only with Jewish sovereignty in the land, a functioning priesthood, and a standing temple— only then can we fulfill all of the forever commandments. 
So 75% of the forever commandments we cannot fulfill. So it raises the question, has God given us a new and better covenant, which fulfills his purposes under the Sinai covenant? Or has he left us unable to fulfill 75% of the forever commandments? And that's where I would point to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, that God said to Israel, and, and this is on the heels of the failed reformation of Josiah, the last godly king of Israel, after that his sons and grandson all fell short. So this is, this is what God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel not and Judah, not like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I, when I brought them out of Egypt. So it's not going to be like the Sinai covenant. This one, the laws are going to be written on their hearts, and there's going to be universal forgiveness of sins. So what happens is that God himself is saying that the Sinai covenant, because of human sin, will fail. Wherever you place the new covenant in your own thinking, okay, whether you say Jesus inaugurated or a traditional Jew, you're still waiting for it to happen. The recognition is that the Sinai covenant fails because of human sinfulness, and God will have to do something Beyond that, God will have to do something new. You say, yeah, but he puts the same Torah on our hearts. Either way, he now enables us to keep it. And in point of fact, when Jewish people came to follow Jesus as, as the Messiah in, in New Testament times, they didn't stop being Jewish. They didn't stop observing the law, but they now observed it by the Spirit rather than just by human tradition. They now observed it in light of the Messiah coming. So now with the temple destroyed, they recognize, okay, everything the law was pointing to in, in terms of sacrifice and offering and things like that, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah. We don't have a functioning priesthood and high priest, but we have the great high priest, and now we become spiritual priests. And, and they didn't say, hey, we can now work on the Sabbath. No, now they understood the full meaning of the Sabbath, having found rest in the Messiah. So it's not a matter of the law being unimportant or not eternal. The question is, how is it a doubt? How is it fulfilled? And I would say you either go the way of Jewish tradition, which adds many things to the law and by necessity has to take other things away, or you go the way of the Messiah and the new covenant. Yeah, I like to remind everyone at this point that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast and everything we say here is uh, listener supported in by that, I mean by people like you. And I really encourage you to please go to our website. That's at deeperwatersapologetics.com. And there's a link there. It says, uh, Help support for work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. It's on the side on the left. You click the link in there and you get taken to Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. That's my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation. And... Then you get in touch with, you make a donation of your risen Jesus. Is. You get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they'll make sure we get your donation. It will be tax deductible. And you can also go on Amazon, buy some ebooks I've either written or co written. Written is a Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed in Today's Christ- Christian. Co written are books like Defining Inerrancy. Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions. And then another way you can support us is by going to our jewelry store. Yes, we have one of those. And guys, 
I, I really hope you've noticed this by now, but the women in your life tend to like jewelry. My wife even has an allergy to knicker. It was hard getting a good wedding ring for her, and she still likes the jewelry. So, guys, if you want to buy some jewelry for that lady in your life, then go to our store where every access code is love. My friend Lena Cluster handles that. If you need any help, get in touch with me, and I'll make sure you get that help. Buy a piece of jewelry for that special lady in your life. And whatever you buy, 25% of what you buy... <laughs> we'll go to deeper waters. So, for you husbands out there specifically, I always like to say, if you do this, you can go ahead and get some brownie points of that screw-up that you recently made in the past with a lady in your life. Or you can get some insurance of that screw-up that I know you're going to make in the future. Now, Dr. Brown, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to be or donate to? Uh, yeah, but we don't have a, a line of jewelry. Man, I should do it. Being Jewish and all that, we could have all these cute Jewish things and Christian imagery all mixed together. Uh, no, I, I, I just learned something new about you, Nick. Didn't know about the jewelry. But um, all right. <laughs> uh, my organization, Ask Dr. Brown, we're obviously involved in Jewish outreach in Israel and around the world. And we also have a, a missions organization. We raise up and send out missionaries all around the world. We, we have missionaries in over 20 nations. Some of them have been there now uh, well over 15 years. And then, of course, I'm greatly burdened to see a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution in America. So your support is, is greatly appreciated. And the easiest thing is just go to Ask Dr. Brown, askdrbrown.org. Click on Donate. You can become a monthly supporter. Uh, we pour back into every month when you, when you do. Or you can help with a one-time donation. Or, uh, at the very least, when you're there, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Uh, if you sign up to get on our email list, so this each week we'll be telling you all the latest articles we've written and videos we've put out, keeping you updated on things. We want to send you a free ebook when you join us today. And yeah, we'll, we'll get that jewelry going, too. Sounds like a very lucrative way to help support the gospel, Nick. <laughs> Well, Dr. Brown, you uh, referred to Deuteronomy 13 and said, Jesus didn't come and entice us to worship other gods and such, but there are some people who say, well, yeah, he did. Jews don't believe in a trinity, and you know, the Old Testament says over and over, God is not a man, and yet, what you expect to believe of Jesus? That God became a man. Yeah, so these are big objections. Number one, uh, fundamental creed of Judaism, the Shema, hero Israel, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, it says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So wouldn't that preclude any type of trinity? That's number one. Number two, perhaps even more importantly, Numbers 23, 1 Samuel 15, say God is not a man that he should lie. Aren't we saying that God became a man? Well, what's very interesting is the New Testament says the Word became flesh. The Word which was with God and which was God became flesh, and walked among us. It doesn't say God became flesh, because that would give the idea that God ceased being God, ceased sitting on the throne, ceased ruling the universe, and instead came down in human form like one of the ancient Greek deities or something like that, and then was killed and then became God again. We, we don't believe that, or, or ascended to heaven and you know then, then took up his deity role again. We don't believe that. We don't teach that. In fact, the idea of the word is something that's found in the Aramaic documents of that day, the Targums, the Aramaic translations and paraphrases. 
concepts of the Hebrew Bible that were already in use in Jesus' day. And that concept, Memra, you have throughout the Targums that that when it talks about God speaking to people and God dealing directly with people, instead of God dealing with them, it's the Memra of the Lord who does it. In Numbers 10, when, when uh, uh, arise, O Lord, and go forth with us and, and stay here with us, O Lord, uh, that's the word of the Lord, go forth, word of the Lord, reside among us. Or in, in Genesis 28, when Jacob prays and he says, Lord, if you'll be with me on my journey, then you'll be my God, and, and etc. In uh, the Aramaic, it is, if, if the word of the Lord will go with me on my journey, then the word of the Lord will, will be my God. There, there are many different aspects in Judaism, the Shekhinah, the presence of God on the earth, and then later the mystical spherot, the emanations of God. There are different ways that Judaism wrestled with the question of how can the eternal, transcendent, invisible God interact with human beings. And they came up with these different concepts of Shekhinah or Memra or Sfirot and things like that. In short, what we believe is this, there's one God and one God only, but his unity is complex. And at one and the same time, he could sit enthroned in heaven, he could fill the universe with his presence, and he can walk among us even in bodily form, hence the idea of God being triune in his unity, a triunity or as I prefer to say, so people don't misunderstand it, complex in his unity. And I find evidence for that right within the Hebrew scriptures. Could there be evidence in Genesis 1 where, where God says, let us make man according to our image and, and in our likenesses. It, could it be let us? Well, it's possible. There are different explanations offered, but that could be. What about in Genesis 18, where it seems clear that Yahweh the Lord himself appears in bodily form with two angels, and they sit and interact with Abraham and Sarah, and Yahweh has a conversation with Abraham and Sarah, and then the angels leave to go check things out at Sodom, and yet Abraham has an extended conversation with Yahweh. When he's done, Yahweh leaves him. And then in, in the 19th chapter of Genesis, it says that Yahweh rained down fire, on, on sulfur on Sodom from Yahweh in heaven. Is that Speaking of him being in two places, some would argue for that. Uh, we see, for example, in Exodus 20, that when God gives the Ten Commandments, there's no form. Uh, they just hear his voice. And in Exodus 24, uh, uh, Aaron, Moses, Nadav, Avihu, and, and 70 elders go up on Mount Sinai, and they see the God of Israel. And, and yet it says in Exodus 33, God tells Moses, no one can see my face and live. In Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with an angel, and he says, I've seen God face to face. I mean, how do we explain these different things? I'm just giving several examples. We would say it's one and the same God. It's not multiple gods. It's not one God who's here and then he's there. It's one God who fills the universe with his presence, works among us by his spirit, sits enthroned in heaven, and on occasion reveals himself in bodily form that people can see. That's the role of the Son. The Son is the one who makes the Father known. So I'm very happy to debate the nature of God I'm very happy to debate God's triunity using the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew Bible alone and saying, this is what we now, this is what we believe, one God, one God only, we don't believe in any other gods. And in fact, that was the main emphasis of the Shema, not the makeup of God as if there was a debate about his own makeup, but rather that he was the one and only God. And that's the polemic throughout the Hebrew Bible. There's only one true God. All of the other gods are not gods at all. 
And this one true God is complex in his unity, but he is the one and only God, the one and only creator. When we rightly understand that, and then even through the lens of certain rabbinic writings, we can say, okay, there are parallel thoughts, different thoughts. There's nothing idolatrous about it. What's idolatrous is when it's presented a certain way as if God came down from heaven, walked among us on earth, ceased to be God in heaven. And therefore, if you could have killed him, you could kill God. Hence, Christians then, with a crass understanding of things, began to accuse Jews of deicide. You tried to kill God. I mean, that's how, how much these things have been misunderstood. It's no surprise that Jewish people have had such a problem with it. But the first century, to present things in this way, I don't believe was a stumbling block for, for the Jews at that time. Well, Dr. Brown, this next one I, I have to raise, and it's when I hesitate to raise because it's very painful, not just for Jews, but for myself as a Christian. And that's that, I mean, I study history, and I know there's a lot of bogus information about the medieval period, such as it being the Dark Ages, and about millions being killed in the Inquisition and such, but <clears throat> unfortunately, our history hasn't always been the best, and some Christians have done terrible things, including to the Jewish people in history, including murdering some of the Jewish people. So how is it that you, a Jew, can be part of a religion that has cured some of your own people. Yeah, it's it's a horrific thing mm -hmm. that you have to deal with. Uh, as a new believer, the local rabbi gave me a book on anti-Semitism in church history. And what's jarring is you don't just have the demonizing of the Jews in the second and third centuries, and then the outright blaming of the Jews of deicide and and, and almost rejoicing their suffering in the 4th and 5th centuries. And then, of course, the horrors of the Crusades begin in the end of the 11th century. You also have in the Reformation, Martin Luther, who started mm -hmm. with real grace towards the Jewish people in 1523, writes barbaric things in 1543, even talking about rabbis being forbidden to teach under penalty of death, and even, even calling for Jewish synagogues and homes to be set on fire, broken down, and destroyed, which is exactly what the Nazis did. Uh, Kristallnacht, November 9th, 10th of 1938, which many historians say that's the real beginning of the Holocaust. They did exactly what Luther said to do. And when the synagogues were burning uh, on the, the morning of the 10th, November 10th, there were German theologians and bishops saying, isn't this great? This is the birthday of Luther and the synagogues are burning. How appropriate. You say, well, how could this happen? Well, what's very clear, though, is when you read the New Testament, the New Testament says the exact opposite of this. There's no possible way that you can justify any of these actions based on the teaching of Jesus or anything in the New Testament. Not a syllable. You know, you may have a radical Muslim who can quote parts of the Quran and use that as justification for murderous acts, but there's no possible way that you can quote the teaching of Jesus or the writings anywhere in the New Testament of, of any author there as justification for these horrific acts. And what we do have is the key is also found in the New Testament that Paul warns about it in Romans 14, that if there is an ignorance in terms of God's eternal purposes for Israel, if there is a thought that God has cast them off forever, that the Gentiles, they are, the Gentile believers in Jesus, they are the new kids on the block, and the Jews are out forever and cursed forever and cut off forever, then that ignorance will produce an arrogance, and that arrogance will cause them to be cut off from the branches or cut off from the, the root and the trunk as well. So what happened is, is the church became either arrogant or ignorant or breathed in the spirit of superiority and pride towards the Jewish people. 
that it, it fell under judgment itself. So what we have to tell Jewish people is this, this is completely contrary to everything that we believe. And, and you also have to remember that it's, it's virtually a thousand years into church history before some of these atrocities are committed. Look, America is just a few hundred years old, barely. Uh, what if a th- 700 years from now, let's say we had that time, let's say in the year 2776, uh, America started committing all kinds of horrific atrocities and said they're doing it based on the Constitution. You'd say it's not the Constitution, and it's taking you a thousand years to get it. You can't blame that on the founders. So what we have to do is show that even through church history, there is a repudiation of anti-Semitism and a working against it. Even Luther's contemporaries rejected his, his anti-Jewish writings and Lutheran Christians in subsequent generations either ignored those writings or outright rejected them. And then around the world, wherever you see the Bible seriously read and believed and followed, remarkably, you find tremendous love for the Jewish people. I've had the privilege of, of ministering overseas on more than 150 trips around the world. And when I'm in Asia, and I've been to Asia about 50 times, when I'm in Asia, when I'm in Africa, when I'm in other countries, and, and I'll sometimes talk about anti-Semitism in church history, people are absolutely shocked. Christians are uh, uh, mortified. They've never heard of this. They didn't know it existed. They say, how can you be a Christian and hate the Jewish people? How can you be a Christian and harm the Jewish people? I've been in outlying jungle locations in India and found Christians there that pray for Israel on a regular basis and celebrate the feasts of Israel as those who've been grafted in. So what I'm saying is when people just read the Bible and follow it, they're going to end up with a love for the Jewish people rather than a hatred of the Jewish people. So we repudiate the past, but we also say it's totally contrary to who we are and what we believe. And then we say, let us demonstrate to you who Jesus really is. Dr. Brown, couldn't be that Jesus came and he's a fine path for those of us who are Gentiles, but he's just not for Jews. Jews have their own path, Gentiles have their own path, and maybe we should just live at peace with that. Yeah, well, the answer is that it's it's not a viable option because Jesus came as the Messiah of Israel. Every strand of the New Testament indicates that. You know, John 1, we found the one that Moses and the prophets spoke of. Uh, Luke 24, he opens their minds, as I said earlier, to show them that everything in the scriptures concerning himself had to come to pass. Uh, The preaching in the book of Acts, beginning in Acts chapter 2, virtually every sermon and Acts that's preached in a synagogue says that he is the Messiah of Israel. The way he's identified in the New Testament, starting in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 1, 1, that, that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he's the Messiah. So if he's not the Messiah of Israel, then he's not the savior of the world. He's either an imposter, he was deceived, his followers came up with this thing. Whatever it is, it, it's, it's non-existent. It's, it's like saying... If you want to believe that Elvis Presley has risen from the dead and is reincarnated, reincarnated as Vladimir Putin, if you want to believe that, that's fine for you. But it's, it's not true. It's not true. So it's not about my truth versus your truth. If Jesus is not the Messiah of Israel, then he's not the savior of the world. And, and for a traditional Jew to say, no, no, he can, the Gentiles can believe it. Well, well, hang on. Did he really die for the sins of the world? Well, no, of course not. Did he really rise from the dead? Well, no, no, of course not. 
is he who the New Testament claims he is, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God? No, of course not. Well, then why are you saying it's okay for the Gentiles? Why is it okay for the Gentiles to believe what you, you feel is a profound, destructive lie and something that's absolutely not true that either he made it up or he was deceived or his followers were deceived or made it up? Why is that okay for them to believe but not for a Jew? It's absolutely self-contradictory. Either he's the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world or he's the Messiah of no one and the Savior of no one. That's the power of Pharaoh's someone Nesimus, who is a Jew, but for now believe in Jesus. And Rahim is saying, "Where Doctor Brown, this sounds interesting, but you know, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I'd be losing my family, putting so much at risk. I'm just not convinced yet. Do you have anything more you can do to convince me? What, how would you suggest I search? Yeah. Well, first thing is you have to tell God." Whatever the cost, whatever the consequences, I want to follow you and be a faithful and loyal Jew. Many of us have lost a lot through our lives, and some have lost everything. And when God called Abram, he called him to leave his father's house, and Jewish tradition says that meant leave his father's idolatry, and the, the Bible backs that up. And then we know that in ancient Israel, that if, if people apostatized, if, if a family apostatized, and you had to be loyal— and you, you actually had to turn them in and say they're worshiping idols. So our greatest loyalty has to be to God, not to family, not to comfort, not to, to our security. God is worth everything, and we must follow him. What I'd encourage someone to do is go to my Jewish outreach website. If they go to askdrbrown.org, click on Jewish, or just go to realmessiah.com, realmessiah.com. If they go there, they'll find short answers and vi- in writing and video to all the major objections that they can raise. They'll find teachings from the weekly Torah portion. We have more videos to add there, but a number of those are there. And then the Feasts of Israel, even from rabbinic literature, will give you arguments as to Jesus being the Jewish Messiah. You can also watch debates that I've done with other rabbis. Watch them give it their best shot. Listen to them give it their best shot. Listen to me respond. And ask yourself, who's right? Who is being faithful to what the scriptures say? And then ask God, guide me, show me, lead me. God, if you do with your help and grace, I'll follow you. And if you truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then cry out to God for forgiveness because we all sin, we all fall short. And he's the one that lays down his life for us so that we can be free. Cry out to God, ask him, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. I truly believe Jesus Yeshua died for me and rose from the dead. And I want to live for you. I want to be yours. And he will give you a new heart, a new life. And then contact us on the website, askdrbrown.org, and say, hey, I've I've really turned to the Lord. I, I really have asked him to come into my life. And we can give you further information, further guidance from there, direct you as to how to connect with others. And then if you want to dig deeper, I've got a five-volume series on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. I've got a 22-hour teaching series, Countering the Counter-Missionaries. If you want to dig deep, all the resources are there at AskDrBrown.org. Well, Dr. Brown, I think things have timed out very well here, and we've reached the end of our interview. And we'll know everyone, I mean, we've had to just give brief answers to these kind of questions. I've read... Thus far, three volumes of Dr. Brown's books. I haven't got the last two yet, but the answers are much more thorough in the books, I can assure you of that. 
Dr. Brown, you have a, a blog, website, and email. If someone wants to get in touch with you, how do they do it? Yeah, again, the simplest thing is everything's at my website, askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org. There's a place where it says contact, and you can write directly to our ministry there. And again, if you've got specific Jewish-related questions, uh, we have team members that would be delighted to respond to you directly and to point you to resources that could be of help. We're absolutely sure that the truth and the truth alone will set you free. You know, as a host of my show here, it's always interesting when I have someone who's a host of their own show on here. Tell us about how we can find your show. When and where can we hear it? Yes, so I do a daily radio show five days a week, two hours a day, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's called The Line of Fire. It's a live call-in show. And if they go to AskDrBrown.org, between 2 and 4, they'll just see a red banner on it saying, listen live. Just click on that. If they click on that, they'll be able to listen there. Uh, The direct link to the radio website is TheLineOfFire.org, TheLineOfFire.org. And if they click on listen, they can subscribe by podcast or later in the day, listen to the shows. Also for Android phones, we don't have it for Apple yet, but Android phones, they can download the Ask Dr. Brown app, A-S-K-D-R Brown. And right there, you'll get links to latest videos, latest articles. They can listen to the radio show there as well. They can even call in from there. So if you have an Android phone, download the Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown app. It's another good way to do it. Do you have a final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Yeah, listen, it's great that you folks are this serious about seeking truth. It's great that you bring people on that make you ask tough questions and think things through. So I want to encourage you that that you don't want to shy away from difficult questions as if there are no answers. And some of you are in circles where, you know, asking questions is almost taboo. And asking questions is, is, you know, off limits. If you've got honest questions, trust me, God has honest answers. Mm-hmm. And when there are things that are beyond our own understanding, because if God communicated them with us, we just wouldn't get it. That's when you see, if you really know him, that he himself is the answer to some of the deepest questions that we have. So those who seek him earnestly will find him and you'll find answers for every last question. Very well said, Dr. Brown. I'd like to thank you for coming on, and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. All right. It's a joy, Nick. Thanks so much. I'd like to remind everyone about next week, we got Dr. War, Jay Warner War, sorry, coming on, talking about his book, Cold Case Christianity for Kids. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>